Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to the second episode of our GCP Insights series. These are quarterly episodes that we release in coordination with the latest release of the magazine by the same name. Uh, I fully introduced our regular panel last time out so I won't be giving them their full titles uh, again this time and every time but joining me to provide a sideways glance and a bit of debate around the hottest stories of the past quarter are Cassie Buckman, Joe McDonald and Karen Z. How you doing guys? Hey coach, what's going on? Hi, how are you doing? So on 21st of April, we released the second edition of GCP Insights and it was very busy uh, with a cover feature on some new proposed European captive domiciles, including an exclusive regarding the United Kingdom, which I think I'm going to get some stick for from the panel because I told them all it wasn't going to happen just three months ago. Uh, the latest from Washington State, regional focuses on Latin America and Asia Pacific and loads, loads more of great original content you can download the pdf of the magazine or read it online for free at globalcaptivepodcast.com just go to the gcp insight section and there is a link in the episode description as well so over the next 45 minutes we are going to talk about some of these stories in further detail and some that weren't in the mag too and actually our first uh, story or topic we're going to come on to uh, we didn't really get into in gcp insights but i'm sure we're going to be doing so in, in future editions and it's a topic that keeps cropping up uh, and that is writing third party risk and entrepreneurial uses of captives and thankfully uh, in karen z we have someone who knows all about uh, this topic having done loads of it for the university of california's captives karen we'll get into the um broader picture re third party risk and some of the things we're hearing about from from captives all around the world in a moment but perhaps it might, it might be good actually just to hear from you kind of what you view as third party risk and how you've incorporated it into the uc's captive so UC has expanded the captive platform to reinsure third-party risks of our employees, faculty, staff, and students through our cell captive structure that was set up in 2019. So currently we are reinsuring our employee employer life insurance program through one of our cells, which has actually now over 280,000 policies and has accumulated 34% of our annual premiums in shareholder equity in only 18 months. So it's pretty successful. That's really exciting. Um, we are also set up a separate cell company, uh, Sequoia IC, to reinsure and provide certain customized employee benefit programs to help support our university faculty, staff, and employees. And this UC Plus program that we call it, the platform actually provides over 35,000 policies to our employees and protects against out-of-pocket expenses due to accidents, critical illness, and hospitalization. This actually saves our employees over $1.8 million of, you know, out-of-pocket expenses for their medical, kind of unforeseen medical incidents. So, you know, we are continuing to explore new third-party captive arrangements like this. Certain things or examples of what we look are looking at putting into these cells uh, would be, you know, our campus connections, insurance programs, student renters, um, and potentially a damage deposit insurance program that we were hoping will continue to bring customized benefits and savings to the students, faculty, staff, and even alumni uh, of UC. 
So I think what's interesting is utilizing a captive for these coverages can really provide the parent organization with a number of key benefits. These programs tend to have relatively low loss ratios. Uh, so self-insuring some of them or all of the risk allows the captive to capture the underwriting profits. And you know it could potentially turn your captive into a bit of a profit center, right, with the surpluses. And I think structuring these risks through a captive can also provide added control in terms of coverage, claims handling, product development, and customer experience. Captive may provide opportunities to reduce costs, right? Like we already know it's it's obviously a financial vehicle that we would want to utilize and in some cases, especially for the employee benefits programs, right, you can actually potentially realize premium reductions there. So that's always a plus. And captives looking to diversify their risk portfolio can, you know, introduce these well-controlled third-party risks, you know, in order to smooth the impact of large unanticipated losses in more traditional lines of coverage. So. I think what has been very helpful, I think, for UC, and in the case of UC, obviously, we're a not-for-profit organization, but, you know, if the captive performs well, right, the funds from those premiums are kept in the captive and could potentially create funds or surpluses that could end up going back to the parent company, right? Um, It's additional capital. Uh, And I think... Again, with the hardening market, right, us as risk owners and risk managers have to dive deeper into our organizations to understand ways that we can further deliver added value. And this really helps us as well. And the captive has been partnering with other departments like human resources or, you know, procurement to identify these opportunities to provide enhanced benefit offerings or, you know, to increase employee retention and recruitment efforts and overall, you know, financially to help reduce costs for the parent organization. So captives are definitely providing the flexibility for us to be creative in terms of how we structure risk and insurance programs. And with, you know, the traditional markets getting much more comfortable with fronting and quota share captive arrangements, it's it's great because we can put in these sorts of programs and the market feels like they are partnering with the captive and sharing these risks. It's a really good rundown, Karen, just to one, what you actually do in the UC captive and then why you do it and the benefits it, it brings and i want to just mention a couple of other good examples uh that have been in the news over the last past few months and they're quite different examples uh but these are big corporate companies who are actually entering the insurance space to different degrees so the first is google or alphabet as we know google have got a very large captive in hawaii it does it does life and non-life uh risk they've officially launched in partnership with Allianz and munich re the google cloud risk protection program and in the case of google Google, uh, I don't believe, I'm not 100% sure, but I don't believe they're using their captive actually in that program. But essentially, it's a cyber insurance product they're aiming at specifically at corporate accounts that are customers of Google Cloud. 
However, a, a different case, uh, which I think is, is more interesting and more where we might see large corporates with sophisticated captives going uh, in the future, is the case of Next Era Energy. They're a very large Florida-based energy company. Uh, the Insurer uh, magazine um, revealed in March that it was planning to launch a surplus lines platform and write third-party business, and it's hired some former executives from Aspen. Now, I understand that they're actually repurposing their long-standing Cayman captive palms insurance company to lead on this risk and may also be exploring lloyd's mga business as well and i think the philosophy here particularly um in the next era case is you know insurance is really expensive at the moment you mentioned that the hard market there karen you know in in the case of next era they have an insurance company which i presume is very well capitalized and has built up a large surplus over time i haven't got it in front of me but it's a 20 30 odd year old captive might even be 40 year old captive um so why not enter that market if if insurance rates are going up and you've got a cap you've got an insurance company ready to go why not enter that market deploy that capital and make the profit yourselves and in the meantime you're likely to be going to be reducing the cost of your own insurance in the group so i mean karen when you guys build up this this surplus through third-party risks does it does it have a direct knock-on effect for you in terms of your own buying power when it comes to insurance and, and deploying the capital of the captive Yeah, absolutely. I think you kind of hit it on the nail when you said that, you know, the captives actually providing, you know, the flexibility with it, with it being financially strong, right, during this time, like it's providing the flexibility for us to be creative in terms of how we structure the rest of our risk and insurance programs, right? I think it then becomes a core vehicle part of the strategy of or part of our insurance strategy, I guess you could say. And, you know, with the traditional insurance markets actually getting more and more comfortable with fronting and quota shares arrangements with captives, I think particularly this this comes to help us, right, in terms of how we structure um, ongoing programs, particularly the third party business programs. As a former regulator, you know, so often does it take a company years really to to get the the momentum to start a captive you know they explore it and then something happens they pull back they explore a little more maybe they start inquiring about feasibility studies or how to structure to what domicile uh you know they they place it in and then they pull back and then eventually though once they they actually cross that that line establish the captive and start writing various lines of coverage in it coverages in it over time i think they, they begin to see more and more of the value that that brings uh, to the to to the company. And that's when they start asking themselves, you know, wh- well, why didn't we do this, yeah. you know, 10 years ago? We could have used this for so many other things if we had had it in place before. I think what's, what's really interesting is that the Next Year Energy obviously isn't a big technology company, but a lot of the big technology companies are the ones that spring to mind for me is where the, a lot of the opportunity is and where a lot of the innovation is already happening. I mean, I've just noticed just from the people at Amazon that I follow, the amount of new insurance-specific and captive-specific roles that they're advertising, uh, looking for for new talent, and, and some of the other tech companies are, do, are doing similarly. It's really interesting to see the new kinds of opportunities which are going to be available for young professionals making a 
becoming a Korean captives. It's there are going to be more and more captive specific roles, I think, as more companies get uh, comfortable with with actually engaging insurance as a business opportunity, not just as as a cost center. And the the last example I'll mention, and it is a shame shameless plug uh, for one of our upcoming episodes on GCP, is I was just recording earlier today with uh, Mike Sericchio and Donna Weber at Marsh with Rich Serena, who is the risk manager at Canon USA. And I'll let I'll let Rich tell his own story regarding Canon, but they actually were the opposite of what Karen and Joe were just talking about. Canon USA set up their captive purely for the third party business. Uh, they set it up in 2018. It's a sell. Again, I'll let Rich tell the story, but they set it up to to take part in a very profitable line of, of warranty they do. And, and now they're starting to add actually third party risks three years later. Now they've got the insurance company. So it can happen the other way around as well. But I think we're going to see more and more of this happening in the captive industry and, and we'll be looking to cover it in as much detail as possible. Real quick to speak to something that you said about the tech companies posting more positions, you know, for whether it be risk managers or captive managers or, or, or people that are involved uh, in their various lines of insurance and, and, and coverages. As captives grow in popularity, I think the companies are, are, are beginning to understand the subtle but very important difference between risk and insurance. And I think when when a company sees, oh, this is our insurance, this is what we need. These are our, you know, this is this is, you know, what our risk might be, and let's just finance it, put it, you know, in the commercial market, and be done with it, and and uh, and lay, you know, lay it off. However, I think once the the concept of risk comes in and saying, wait a minute, we own this risk, we own the data behind this risk, and we understand this risk, and wait a minute, why would we not want to control this risk more? So how do we finance it and manage it in a, a more sophisticated and complex way that, that really is gonna benefit us? When the, the focus turns to risk as opposed to insurance, uh, I think it becomes more attractive to companies, quite frankly. All right, let's let's change tack a little bit because we've got loads to get through uh, in this episode. And of course, uh, there was another 831B uh, US tax court case recently, another win for the IRS uh, in the US tax court. It was a win, wasn't it, Cassie? I mean, I don't like the win-lose, but yeah, it was. But they did. <laughs> the, 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 the taxpayer uh, lost quite, you know, quite emphatically. Uh, it was mm-hmm. the case is known as Kayla, Cassie. So can you just let us know a couple of the key facts uh, on this case? And uh, we, we talked a little bit about the whole environment surrounding 8-foot-on bees in the last episode. So I don't want to go through that whole debate again, but it'd be good to hear what some of the key, kind of key facts were in relation to this case. Right. So Kaler Land Development, um, they had set up captives with Tribeca. And um, Judge Holmes, if you ever get bored and want to read an opinion, he's pretty funny. Uh, he explained the process of them setting up the captive. It's, it seemed they did you know, do their research. Unlike the Avrahamis, though, they didn't depend on a third party their experience to set it up so they didn't have that excuse so to say but what they did was paid the max amount they could to elect 831b in premium and then the underwriting process would begin the next year and the policy was issued after and that they were claims made policies so this policy is being issued and you can't any claims you would have filed you didn't even have the policy then so a if you're not doing the underwriting before you're issuing the policy, how do they even know how much premium to pay? And B, obviously that's not how it works. So there was a lot of issues with that. They had a couple claims that were denied. You know, the captive manager told them they weren't covered. 
and the board overruled that, which you can do if you own your own insurance company. But they were paying claims on policies they didn't literally have yet. It's very obvious that's not how it works. I, I think it's Cassie, those, those claims made examples are, are, are quite good to pull out, aren't they? Because a lot of this stuff, for someone who's not a lawyer and has had to kind of teach himself a little bit about this jargon over the last seven years um, covering captives, a lot of the opinions kind of go over my head a little bit. And I do need people like yourself and others to explain them to me. But that, that claims made that Judge Holmes outlined and the problems with it was, was clear as day that this right. was purely abusive stuff it's not even cleverly done they're not even trying to hide that they're abusing the tax election and the way they allocated uh the premiums between the named insured so other companies they owned it made literally no sense it just didn't make sense and they actually had a couple actuaries come in and look at the uh amounts of premium and how they were determined and both actuaries said they had that that's not it's not how it works it's not science they just decided what they wanted one thing that really broke this captive was they lacked the risk distribution. And from this opinion, he also cites his Avrahami opinion that independent risk exposure is key. So coming through this, you really do find what the courts are looking for now. And that's usable. And it's also not off base of what we've been studying and implementing throughout the court cases in the U.S. here. I think one of the things we discussed about three months ago, and again, I don't want to get too much into it again, is in my opinion, this is good for the, this is good for the industry. And I saw lots of headlines, I lots of captive insurance headlines, which said another blow to 8.1B captives, this result. No, this isn't a blow. This no. is 100% exactly what should be happening. If you've got abusive 8.1B captives, they should be getting pinged. I think that's a positive thing. It's an, as you say, Cassie, it's another court case laying out what is wrong which exactly. you know you should be able to help you find what is right so this more of these abusive captives we should be wanting to, them to get caught and them to get punished to clean up the industry because it does need cleaning up so when they were trying to figure out like i said the way the premiums were pay- distributed and then how they were all paid by to each other etc um the quote is for a father and son to have a warm and loving relationship that helps sustain and grow the family business is admirable, but it's not deductible. <laughs> they were trying to say that their morning breakfast meeting counted uh, as consulting. I think admirable but not deductible might be the title for this uh, for this podcast <laughs> episode. Ooh, I like it. It's a good one. <laughs> there, there was some other really good, uh, not good, sorry. There was some other very interesting news relating to 8.1B captives. Uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Cassie, and that was, uh, I think the IRS have been buoyed by their latest victory in the US tax court. And I know that you're probably wincing at me saying victory, but they've also announced some promoter audits. They like to call them promoter audits. They like to call people who advertise 8 foot on B captives promoters. And I think that's not a bad way to describe them in some cases. But what what is this all about, Cassie? Well, so they announced they had 12 teams they had set up to look into captives. They're sending these threatening letters, soft letters that are basically telling anyone who has elected this tax election, uh, you're committing fraud, shut it down immediately or we're coming for you. And like I mentioned, I think the last podcast, Congress created this tax election and through the PATH Act increased the amount. IRS doesn't have the power to shut down this election. And us in the industry, we do understand the bad actors. And this promoter audit hopefully helps 
narrow down those bad actors. But hopefully this is something that's going to help us. But they can't, they, they can't get rid of everybody. And that's what they're trying to do. And I wish instead they've made it clear that what they're really doing is looking for the, the people who are, like they say, quote, promoters who are going to people like the Kalers. Like, hey, I've got a great deal for you. Well, I guess the theory for the IRS is if, is if you catch uh, one captive manager or one promoter acting badly with one or two of its clients, they're thinking, well, well let's investigate all of the, the whole book, right? That, that's, I imagine, mm-hmm. is, is the logic. It's probably a, they think it's probably a shortcut. And in some ways it might work out, but as we know, it's going to, at the same time as catching the bad actors, it's also going to kind of punish and slow down and add regulatory and administrative burden yeah. to the good actors. But for me, that's not on the IRS. That's on the bad actors in the first place. That's my opinion. Um, if, you, if, you're, if you're an industry that wants to operate correctly, you need to root out the bad actors and then you won't suffer. You won't suffer as a result. So self-policing. We discussed this exactly three months ago. There should be yeah. much more self-policing and much more self-regulation. Right. Let's move on. Um, as I said, there's, there's some great coverage in the latest GCP Insights magazine on this particular case. Uh, and we have uh, some commentary from EY on, on that as well, which I advise uh, checking out. Now, one thing we touched upon uh, three months ago, and this is a topic which actually made the cover feature for the, G- the April edition of GCP Insights, is this uh, emergence in Europe, France and Italy specifically, which have been talking about becoming captive domiciles. And, and we'll see where that goes. We haven't really had any more news from either of those two countries since we last spoke in January. But the, the kind of big development over the last three months, and uh, we touched upon it regarding Lloyd's. We've we've known now since, uh, in, since kind of early 2020 that Lloyd's has been investigating this captive syndicate idea where a, an insured could set up a syndicate within Lloyd's called a captive syndicate, which could be used for captive type business. Now, I understand that we're going to have a pilot launched for that they were saying sometime in May. I haven't heard, heard anything in the last couple of weeks, so maybe it'll be May, maybe it'll be June, but we are expecting a pilot scheme to be launched uh, for the Lloyd's Capture Syndicate in the next month or so. And the real exclusive we got in GCP Insights, uh, which I did actually kind of hide away a little bit, so you have to kind of dig around to find it at the end of the cover feature, is that the UK itself, outside of Lloyd's, so the UK is a country, the government, is looking uh, at setting up a captive framework. This has been led by the London Market Group, kind of one of the industry bodies that uh, represents a lot of the, the big insurance uh, companies in the, in the city. And uh, the idea here is that obviously we've had Brexit. So there are question marks over Solvency 2 and the UK government is doing a Solvency 2 review. And the city thinks that captives might be one kind of easy Brexit win is the kind of quote I've been fed. Now, I'll come clean here, guys, because I said to you, I think you guys asked me, I think it was Joe or Cassie that asked me three months ago, would uh, would the UK enter enter the captive ring? And, and I said, said, apart from Lloyd's, I said, apart from Lloyd's, I couldn't see it happening. So that's, that kind of tells you everything you need to know about my knowledge and insight into the industry. <laughs> um, but I believe it is serious. The London Market Group has had a number of uh, conversations with the government. And yeah, they think they're going to have a compelling proposition to put forward. Do you know a timeline for that at all, or is it just still in the early stages of discussion? So they've had a couple of meetings, the London Market Group, with uh, with the government. Uh, the government has obviously got a lot of bigger issues on its plate at the moment, particularly the Treasury, which would be the, the kind of department leading this. Uh, they want to discuss whether they would keep Solvency 2 or not keep Solvency 2. 
the, the feeling I've got from the London market group, from the people I've spoken to them, is they seem to think they could do something under Solvency 2, which for me would make the whole thing a no-go because you'd, you'd be stuck in Solvency 2, but you wouldn't have the passport into the EU that you would have if you're Malta or Luxembourg or Dublin. You wouldn't be able to compete with Guernsey because Guernsey's outside of Solvency 2. So Guernsey's real big selling point is it's got the captive infrastructure, uh, but it's not... Uh, not bound to Solvency 2. For me, if the UK government and the London market is serious about doing this, then they need to look at Bermuda. Bermuda have got the best of both worlds. The only, only place in the world that's done it, they've got a commercial reinsurance market, which is Solvency 2 equivalent. So they get all the benefits of being Solvency 2 equivalent, but they've kept all their captive business outside of Solvency 2. They've got a bifurcated regime. I believe it's the only regime that's done it in the world. The UK needs to use Bermuda as the precedent, and that's what they need to be need to be achieving. If they do that, it's got a chance. Otherwise, I think the Lloyd's proposition will, will get ahead of the, the UK government proposition. Yeah, I actually think the Lloyd's, from what I heard in my last meeting with, you know, for the council, it's interesting because they definitely are going to test the pilot. I think their one concern right now was that the concentration of risk, actually, um, in terms of like, you know, what would it do to the overall Lloyd Central Fund? And so that was brought up. And I think that's why they hadn't delved into it. But I obviously asked, you know, what is going on with this, you know, captive syndicate kind of project? And there's definitely going to be a pilot that readmits, you know, captives and has them hosted at Lloyd's. So they are looking into it and experimenting with it, I guess you could say, as we speak. Just not sure when that's actually going to happen. That's a good moment just to really emphasize that there are two, it's quite complicated in the UK. There's two very different things happening. There's what Lloyds have been planning for a couple of years now, which is where you'd have your captive inside the Lloyds market. So it'd be just like a syndicate in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think they'd say it's exactly like a syndicate. Mm-hmm. So it's it's regulated within the Lloyds market. Lloyd is regulated by the UK regulator. What the UK government and the London market group is talking about is like you'd have captives in any other country or any other state or any other domicile. It's like it would be in Luxembourg or it would be in Malta or it would be in Vermont or Bermuda. It's it's a, a separate insurance company. They're also exploring PCCs in the UK, again, outside of Lloyd's, because they already have PCC, PCC legislation, which was introduced for insurance link securities business. Mm-hmm. At the moment, it specifically says it can only be used for ILS there's no reason why they couldn't amend that to change that to be allowed captive business. So if they can get the PCC sorted and they can answer the Solomon to 2 question, I think the UK could have a companion proposition. They've got all the insurance market expertise and infrastructure in place. Um, if it's a Solomon to 2 domicile, I don't think it, it's really got a chance uh, of competing. What interests me in this uh, further, I should say, is is that we're seeing a, a non-regulatory entity uh, a market, obviously, in, the, in this case, becoming essentially a captive domicile. And if this is possible, I wonder what the further ramifications of this will be. You know, how does this open it up for yeah for 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 others? Normally, obviously, it's 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 a uh, the regulators are a government entity, or the domicile, I should say, is a, is a, a a government entity as as the UK is trying to do. But in this case, it's unique in that fashion and. I think it's creative and interesting and I want to see how it plays out. And wasn't it unique to even start insurance? Yeah, and Lloyd's and the whole Lloyd's, the way the Lloyd's market. Maybe they're onto something. Well, I mean, Lloyd's itself is a relatively unique structure. I mean, I'm not an expert on on the wider Lloyd's issues, but I'm I'm struggling to think of another. I'm sure someone will email in and say, Richard, there's loads of them. But let's just remember, Lloyd's is regulated. This isn't an unregulated captive structure. Lloyd's is regulated and then Lloyd's takes care of the syndicates. And in this case, Caps syndicates. But let, let's watch this space. 
I will find out in three more months' time that I've got it all wrong again, and there'll be a third. There'll be a third version of, <laughs> and maybe Edinburgh will be the latest cat to domicile from from, from the UK. All right. So lastly, uh, on this GCP Insights is we're going to come. I've I've saved this for last because we did talk about it again quite a bit uh, three months ago, and that is uh, Washington State and. It's got a little bit quiet in the last week or so. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the state legislature did actually pass the legislation that Commissioner Creedler had put forward introducing this new 2% uh, sale procurement tax on, on Washington state-owned captives insuring risk in Washington state. Uh, recommended listening for you is a GCP short recently on self-procurement taxes we did with EY, so do check that one out. But Joe, you're, our, you're kind of our Washington state correspondent on this, so... Where are we up to and what, what is kind of the key discussion points you think there are here? As it stands, we anticipate that Governor Jay Inslee will sign Senate Bill 5315 into law any day now and without any further hurdles. I know listeners of the podcast and, and readers of GCP Insights, uh, I'm sure are by now aware of the history of self-procurement taxes in the U.S., the main court cases that have guided and influenced the application of these taxes and how various other states have implemented or enforced uh, or, or not enforced, as the case may be, these taxes. Uh, EY did an exceptional you know, piece uh, on this. Um, and from a, a larger self-procurement tax perspective, this issue is, is not a new one to the industry whatsoever. The Todd Shipyards case, as was referenced in the, the EY piece, was decided in the early 60s. So again, nothing new. I, I do, however, think it's important for this conversation to highlight maybe three issues that stem from this legislation and, and that are going to inform the, the larger conversation for the industry. The first issue is obviously the self-procurement tax issue, uh, which brings up the questions, how will this ultimately impact captives writing risk in Washington state? Will it deliver a blow to middle market captives, a blow that could be detrimental to not only the captive, but also uh, the owner itself? This bill I think originally was touted as a compromise by, you know, saying, oh, it's the, you know, the industry and regulators working together. But in, in what way does this benefit captives writing risk in, in, in Washington state? That's so those questions arise from, from that first issue. The second issue and arguably the larger one, is this a form of double regulation? Captives licensed and regulated elsewhere are required by this bill to register, quote unquote, in Washington. What will this registration entail? How invasive will it be? And once registered, what kind of authority does it give Washington regulators over the captives? And ultimately, is this an infringement on the sovereignty of another domicile? The third issue, uh, I think, is how will this influence other states that do not have self-procurement tax taxes themselves and or are not captive domiciles? How will it influence them as they craft their approach to captive taxation regulation? So that's the third issue. And I, I really pose these questions knowing that the industry is thinking about them and anticipating the answers. And I, I know we're all you know, waiting to see how, how it's going to shake out. Now, as a former regulator, I, I do want to give the benefit of the doubt to Commissioner Kreidler and his team. And I want to be respectful, of course, and not overly critical. I, I genuinely believe that Commissioner Kreidler is, is doing what he thinks is best regarding insurance regulation and captives riding in, in Washington. And I guess, understandably seeking revenue streams in the meantime, I mean, states need money, <laughs> but that said at, at the heart of insurance regulation is the consumer. It's the individual, whether they be individual or corporate, it, it doesn't matter. It's the end user, if you will. And the regulatory framework is in place and the financial help of the insurance company is the focus in my opinion, 
to ultimately protect the consumer. And taxation is there to financially support this regulation. Now, listeners know all this already and, and forgive me for reiterating it and quite possibly for, for being you know, naive, but how does this legislation with its associated taxation and registration do that? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, so the point you made about the double regulation, the, the thing which was interesting about three or six months ago when this legislation was first posed and was first being discussed, you know, there's a, there's a big explosion of anger from the captive industry about this double regulation question. And, and I, I completely got it and I understood what they're talking about and I agreed with, with most of it. But I also, part of me was also like, hmm, yeah, m- maybe it's not such a big deal. Like maybe it won't turn out to be so bad. Maybe it's just literally signing a form once a year. And yeah, I, I understand why people get upset by that and it sets a bad precedent. I can see Cassie putting faces at me and I, I do understand that there is legal issues um, with it, but I did think, well, maybe it won't be such a big deal. But if you read what Stephen Beagley says, who's kind of the, the expert uh, locally in Washington state, he, he writes in, sorry, he says in the magazine, he says, no, I expect this to be quite a burdensome process. I expect there to be quite a lot of back and forth between the captive or the captive's representative and the reg- and the regulator. He cited uh, another example that the, the commissioner put in place in a completely different area a few years ago, which has become quite a quite a burdensome problem for those concerned in that case. And he says it will probably be it will probably be quite a lot of work to meet the once you start registering as an insurer in Washington State, it's going to bring increasing the amounts of administration which is what everyone was scared of in the first place. And it, and Rich Smith obviously yeah, has his own interests in Vermont and, and again, spoke in the, in the GCP Insights representing VCIA. And that, that's the part that he's most he's most worried about because the 2% tax is actually kind of par for the course for what most states charge self-procurement tax. They don't all administer it properly. They don't all chase it properly, but it's about right. It's kind of middle of the road. It's the registration, which is the part which has upset most people. This, this further scrutiny, you know, uh, by other regulators and, and, and more hoops to jump through uh, for, for a captive. So it's, yeah, it really is an unknown and, and a questionable move. Again, given Commissioner Cry the benefit of the doubt, but I, I don't understand how it answers some of the fundamental questions that, that I, I asked. Um, nor do I believe that this legislation is the best outcome for, for Washington or the broader captive community or industry, quite frankly. From what I know, again, I, I just I can't come up with a satisfactory answer to, uh, to that fundamental question about the purpose of insurance regulation and taxation. So the, the, one, the one bit I'll leave you with on this story, and, and you mentioned right at the start of your explanation, Joe, about you know different states do this in different ways. What questions will it raise for states which don't already have proper self-procurement taxes on their books? And we, we note them in the article. I think there's five or six plus DC which don't have proper self-procurement taxes on their books currently. So they could be looking at Washington State and how they've done it. But also a lot of these states which have gone down this quite aggressive self-procurement tax route, I'm thinking Tennessee and Texas are the ones that spring to mind have gone on to produce quite successful captive domiciles but the story i want to quickly mention which is another exclusive snippet you'll find in gcp insights you will not find anywhere else is the story of boeing now boeing uh, they have had a captive in vermont since like 1984 or something it was one of the first 10 captives which was licensed in vermont illinois went down this whole sale procurement tax hoo-ha about five or six years ago i was a captive review at the time and long story short Boeing ended up moving their captive back to Illinois because Illinois set up some legislation. A few captives did this. Uh, Illinois headquartered companies did this. They moved their captives back home. Illinois then actually reversed their sale procurement tax. I think it had gone up to around 3.5%. It then got moved back down to 0.5%. 
Boeing have just moved their captive back to Vermont. And the, the reason is not so much the self-procurement tax changing, but they weren't able to run their captive in the way they wanted to with the regulators in Illinois. Again, not a criticism of the regulators in Illinois, but they were not used to captive business. They, weren't, they were more used to regulating State Farm and other large commercial carriers. They're not used to regulating these relatively simple but very large uh, captive insurance companies. So Boeing have just moved. They went for a two-year holiday to Illinois and I just moved back to Vermont and I think it's a great tale to tell or warning story for kind of be careful what you wish for they, they moved back to simplify the self procurement tax issues and now they've ended up going back to Vermont uh, because it was just better to stay in the experienced regulatory environment that they have and there's there's also an example and a warning story there for people if you're a French captive owner or Italian captive owner or even a UK captive owner and you're in Dublin or Malta or Luxembourg or Guernsey and you're thinking about moving home just be careful and be aware of what you move into because you might not have it as good as you do with people who are experienced captive regulators. So that's uh, that's my kind of plug uh, for that last bit of snippet on the episode. We're going to finish as usual on a on a hopefully a little bit of a fun uh, and light topic. Every episode uh, we try and finish on a fun question to help listeners get to know our panel a little better if you don't already know them. Last time out we discussed uh, if you could get insurance for anything in our personal lives uh, with no limitation, what would that be? Uh, and I think we all came up with some quite interesting answers. But I believe we've all been in product development since then over the past three months. And we just need now to actually come up with our own insurance companies. I presume a captive insurance company to insure these areas. So the question is, what would you call your own captive insurance company? Karen, let's hear uh, your one first. Okay. Well, so I thought about this one a little bit. So I think my parent organization would probably be a dance or ballet company or even like a manufacturer of dance shoes. And so I thought on point would be a really on point insurance company would be a really cute name. That's what I thought. But yeah, I looked it up and I think they have on point other stuff, but not insurance. So it's called on point insurance company. Yeah. And I think we'd be okay. So you've, you've even done the you've even done the IP check and you've got the trademark. <laughs> Just in case, it's all ready to go. Just in case, not that I'm ever going to run a company, a ballet company or anything, right? But just in case. <laughs> Joe, how about you, Joe? Yeah. So my my creative captive name uh, is going to be Reinheitsgebot. And uh, that's okay, the what name. The hell is, what the hell is that <laughs> that's the name of uh, the 500-year-old uh, German beer law, and 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 the, the Reinheitsgebot, aka the keg, that's going to be the core of the cell structure, and each cell is going to be a pint. So it's going to be like one pint, two pint, three pint, and in each pint, we'll just you know we'll, we'll put in uh, various various companies or maybe singular companies. Uh, that want to compartmentalize their, their their risk from other companies, and uh, okay. yeah, we're, we're going to have. Uh, you've already you've already got a marketing strategy there because you can you, know, you can display that and illustrate it quite nicely, I imagine, for your marketing yeah. materials. So yeah, oh, de- definitely. Yeah. Visually, it'll be be, be a, a cinch, and uh, yeah, we're go- we're going to to cover uh, various breweries internationally. Growing business. That's it. That's it. And then you know, I figured okay. that uh, also you could do. Uh, I mean, p- people get creative with their their pints as long as they have pint in the name. I'm good with it. You know, because you could have the first one could be the full pint, and then you know, 
It could be a cold pint. And then if there was a smaller one, we call it half pint. Yeah. So each cell would have, it has to have the word pint in the, a bit like some states say you have to have the word cell captive in the title. You're saying it's going to have to have the word pint in it. What, what do you think about that? You, you like it? You're in, you're in on it? Yeah, yeah. Fine. If, I, <laughs> if I've got a brewery to insure, then I'll, I'll come to you. Let's reach out the brew dog, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cassie, how about, how about you? I came up with two. Uh, one is rescue the captives. I don't know if it's Inc. or LLC. I haven't thought yes. that through yet. And the other one will be Captives at Sea. It could be a good marine Inc. insurance company. It's whatever we want. I mean, there's ridiculous yeah. names out there, but that's what people think when you say you work with captives. They're like, oh my God, are you saving all of them? So, uh, <laughs> um, well, mine's pretty boring. I, I was following the theme from, from three months ago when yeah. my insurance product was going to be insuring the emotional damage that Derby County Football Club do to me. I do have to mention them every episode because no one else is going to mention them. So uh, my captive insurance company is going to be called Ram Indemnity Limited because Rams is the nickname of, of, of the Super Rams Derby County. And we are we could be about to get relegated this weekend. So do pray for us. Pray we do not get relegated. Um, but uh, I'm going to just also quickly plug a few of my favorite captive insurance company names that are already out there uh, I think I might have mentioned them before SpaceX Captive is called Final Frontier Insurance Company fantastic name and there was a captive formed a couple of years ago in North Carolina called Westeros Insurance Company which uh, for those who are Game of Thrones fans uh, will be particularly interested I still don't know who owns it if it's the Lannisters if it's the, the Tyrells uh, or, or Dawn <laughs> I, don't, I don't know maybe it's a group captive for the whole kingdom but anyway uh, thanks guys listeners uh, as ever if you haven't read the magazine yet do check it out go to globalcaptivepodcast.com the GCB Insights section click the links in the uh, show notes as well and if you're not subscribed already do subscribe to the podcast on Spotify Apple Podcast Castbox, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.